We're actually going to take two um, two chapters tonight. Um, we're going to I'm going to read eight one through nine eleven. Uh, nine's short chapter. Reason for that, if you sometimes folks read it ahead, uh, the the theme is the same. It's it's connected. I'll begin to read verse one, chapter eight. God's holy and perfect word. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire. From his loins and upwards the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy which provokes to jealousy was located. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the appearance which I saw on the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now towards the north. So I raised my eyes towards the north and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary? But yet you will see greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. He said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked. Behold, every form of creeping thing and beast and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall and all around. Standing in front of them were the seventy elders of the house of Israel, was with Jazaniah and the son of Shaphan standing among them, each man with a censer in his hand, fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. And he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, the women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. They were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit this abomination which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? Behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will not pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. And he cried out in the hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of this city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, He called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men 
who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity, do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple, and he said to them, Defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. The land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, a man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God, you are a holy God. You are high and lifted up. Heaven is your throne. Earth is your footstool. I pray, Almighty God, that you would give me the requisite words to present your word correctly, accurately, even in the right manner, Almighty God, to bring you glory, that your people who are called by your name would receive it, even in our hearts, Lord, and it would radically change us, seeing your holiness and seeing the sin that so often stains your holy bride, even the household of faith. Help us, Almighty God, May we live as that elect remnant, the ones that mourn and weep over the sin of the better part of the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The reason we switched, I was originally thinking with the the use of the secondary standards, chapter 7. Chapter 7 is our confession dealing with the covenant of God, and chapter 8 is dealing with the king of the covenant, Christ, the, the mediator of the covenant. So covenant, chapter 7, uh, Christ, chapter 8. And all of those things would have been applicable. And, and the passage that we were going to look at was um, the exposition of, of how the gospel was administered under the old epoch. Types and shadows and those th- kind of things. So when you come to the business of the temple, uh, the inner court, um, the holy of holies, the, the ark of the covenant, the cherubim, the mercy seat... What we're looking at is, is Christ in his work prefigured. So when the people of God are perverting that, they're actually perverting the gospel. So these things are gospel and type and shadow. I, I thought we would deal with that in the body of the sermon. And I had our brother walk us through essentially what the second, second commandment requires and then forbids and then the reasons. This is a breach of the second commandment. So when I come, this is an Old Testament historical narrative. When I come to a historical narrative, I'm looking for the various themes that are running through the narrative. They're a little bit, it's, you, when you preach a narrative, it's a little bit different than saying preaching a doctrinal passage like this morning. But you look for the themes. So if you were going to do a Bible study on Ezekiel 8 and 9, you'd get your Bible theme glasses out and you'd step back and you'd say, what's going on here? And right away, we have a picture of Christ. We've seen Christ back in chapter 1, chapter 2. 
We've, we've, we've shown clearly from the book of Revelation that the fellow that we're looking at indeed is Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Pre-incarnate Christ in, in, his, his, um, in his position as a mediator. So you see Christ, and then you see that Christ sees. He's looking at something in particular. And then what, what he's looking at in particular is his worship. And that's one of the reasons that, that what are the reasons in to the second commandment and our, our forefathers have it right the zeal that he hath for his own worship. That's what so offends God, is that they're perverting the worship of God. We've mentioned previously in other sermons, for us as human beings, when you were to say, what's the worst sin? You would perhaps say murder. We're thinking of man's abuse of fellow men, and certainly that's, it's, it's heinous. But that's not the worst sin. The worst sin is not for man to strike at man. The worst sin is for man to strike at God. And the worst of the worst sin is to strike at God in the worship of God. And um, that's what we're seeing here. We could have easily had read, in conjunction with, with this, um, the first commandment, because they're breaking the first commandment. They're not only perverting the worship of Jehovah by trying to worship Jehovah under types and shadows that he hasn't prescribed, but they're also introducing false gods. So in the, the, the first commandment is have no other gods, only the God of the Bible. The second commandment is don't try to worship the God of the Bible in ways that he has not prescribed. So they're clearly doing both. We just looked at the first. I'll bring in the second, that they're worshiping this false god, Tammuz. Uh, they're worshiping the sun, uh, even. So they are breaking the first, and they're breaking this, the second expressly. Um, but it is a perversion. It is a perversion or a corruption of the gospel as expressed in the Old Testament. But back to, we're going to look thematically, we're going to step back at this passage obviously I'm not going to walk through each and every point, but I want to just see some of the more salient things that we find in in the passage so the man speaking to Ezekiel um, is this the man that we have seen previous, and I'm, I referenced Ezekiel 1 and what we're looking at here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ um, he is speaking to his prophet Ezekiel to speak to his people. We see him under various figures. We've seen him throughout the book on his throne, in his kingly office. We've seen him, I would argue, in his prophetic office. In chapter 2 to chapter 7, he gives his word to Ezekiel to give to his people, his prophetic office. And then we see him in his linen uh, clothes, um, which I would argue is his priestly office, both in chapter 9 and then as well in chapter 10. But we'll, we'll see some of these things. Ezekiel 1, verse 26, just to show you that we are indeed looking at Christ. Now, above the expanse, there was over their heads something like resembling a throne, uh, like lapis, luzili, in appearance. And on that throne, which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loin downwards, I saw something like fire. We're looking at this fellow in chapter 8 and chapter 9 again. Again, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a radiance all around him. In the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, and this was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Revelation 19, I want to say 11 through 16, clearly shows New Testament helps us understand some of the shadowy Old Testament passage. This is the pre-incarnate Christ on a throne. So we have King Christ 
speaking to his prophet, to speak to his people. He's exercising his lordship. So when we come to passages like this, and I I wrestle with this. I love this series. It's super interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to, to you. But it's frightening. These are, there are some frightening things here. I don't want to pass over any of God's words. I want to hear it. I want to treat it pastorally without utterly beating us to the dust. When we look at a passage like this, again, looking at some of the themes behind it, we're looking at the lordship of God, the sovereignty of God, his kingship, his mastery over all things. And oftentimes, even in the modern church, we, we like and want Savior Jesus but we very much don't cotton to Lord Jesus. You, you, Jesus is not your Savior if he's not your Lord. He's not your Lord if he's not your Savior. They, you cannot separate the offices. In other words, you can't say, Oh God, I'll let you save me, Jesus Christ, but I won't let you tell me what to do. If, if we resist the Lordship, if we reject the Lordship, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me your Lord if you do not do what I say? So I, I understand that we're more inclined to Savior Jesus. And sometimes Lord, King, Master in his sovereignty. And when I say sovereignty, I mean real sovereignty. He's not taking a vote. This is not democracy. He's exercising his sovereignty in judgment. That frightens even believers. These are frightening passages. If you don't read these passages and you're not overwhelmed, I don't think you're reading it rightly. But we are looking at an expression of the sovereign lordship of God over creation as God, but over the church, over the household of faith, because he is the king even of the church. One of the things that we learn as we see Jesus speaking to his people is the way that God reveals himself to his people savingly, not through nature. We're Protestants. I know the Roman Catholic Church has the a doctrine that says even the even the heathen can know God savingly by looking at the nature. As Protestants, we don't believe that. The only way that we can know God savingly, we can know we can know that God is by looking at creation. We can know that He's mighty and powerful and good, but it's not saving. The scriptures are necessary for us to know that we are uh, sinners and Christ is the Savior, and then the Holy Spirit gives us faith, makes us alive, and applies the scriptures to us. But my point with that is this. The way that God reveals himself to his people savingly is always and only through Christ. It's, Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. If, I, if you take Christ away, then we, we cannot see God the Father. We know God, and God makes himself known in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're looking at here is God is revealing himself to his people in this vision. Now, again, we're Protestants um, conscientiously Protestant, sola scriptura. I am a sola scriptura. If someone says, what about dreams and visions? And here in Ezekiel 8 and 9, we still are in the old epoch. God is revealing himself to his people in dreams and visions. But again, according to how we understand the scriptures, and there are other churches, I've been members of these other churches, they still believe that we're in an epoch of dreams and visions. We don't happen to believe that. We think based on Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that that epoch is over. But the epoch was still existent here. So God was revealing himself savingly to his people in dreams and visions. But now, sola scriptura, it is written, and so on. I just point that out by way of a sign. This is God's self-disclosure. And that, in my opinion, 
when we understand that God is freely condescending to reveal himself to his people here, in my view, it mitigates even some of the the terror of what we're looking at. And why do I say that? God, the Bible, to use the language of the Bible, is high and lifted up. I prayed it. Heaven is, is his thro- throne. Earth is his footstool. God is so high and holy and transcendent. If he did not condescend to reveal himself to man, who's so infinitely below him, no man would know him. The fact that we are known by God reveals that God wants to be known. Read the high priestly prayer of John 17, 1 through 17. That's what it's all about. The children that you've given me, they belong to you. I have revealed you to them and me to them. So even though this is a judgment passage, it's very true. Woven throughout this passage is that condescending love on God's part to reveal himself to his elect people. He always has an elect people. Verse 4, there's a group within this larger group of the people of God that are lamenting the sin of God's people. And so those... That tiny remnant of people, those are the true believers. And God will reveal himself both as just to the unbelievers amidst the group of, of the household of faith, and he is the one that extends mercy to these elect believers. So we're looking at God condescending to reveal himself. Um, here, I'm arguing even in the judgment passage, it is to us... Um, it is to us certainly a judgment passage, but it is to us also a mercy passage. And I see both in this passage. Now, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ in the presentation of Christ here, um, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's mediator uh, on God's behalf to man. And the Lord Jesus Christ is both fully God and he's fully man. I'm doing a membership class for a a little girl, nine, she's nine. And so I say, is Jesus God? Jesus is God. Is Jesus man? Jesus is, is man. Do you know exactly how that works? And she has a little mask. No, neither do I. I know the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the eternal Godhead. I know the Bible says that in time, he came through the womb of the Virgin Mary, overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of her, yet without sin. He is fully God fully man what is the council of chalcedon unmixed unchanged unseparated undivided it's a mystery but it's true according to the bible and as god he represents god to man and as man he represents uh, man back to god that's what we're looking at so when we see this fellow running clear through the book of ezekiel speaking to ezekiel from his throne as a prophet and here at the end with priestly garb we're looking at the mediator of the covenant, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And I use the, the term mediator of the covenant because this is the way that um, Malachi speaks of Jesus. So that's what we're looking at. And we've mentioned King Christ, Prophet Christ, Priest Christ. And a couple of things that we learn here, when Jesus speaks to Ezekiel again, he, he informs Ezekiel that he sees, Jesus sees, what's occurring in the temple of God. And essentially, as I mentioned in the opening, which were the breaking of the first and the second, Christ sees the idolatry, and I'm going to underline this phrase, 
that the people of God are practicing in the temple of God. And this is so significant. This is not the Hittite. This is, this is not the Jebusite. This is the person that says, I am a child of God. I believe in Jehovah. He says over and over again, the house of Israel are committing abominations. The house of Judah committing abominations. If I could bring it up to our day, this would be the professing church. This is a Revelation 2 or Revelation 3. Jesus in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, he's not rebuking the Hittite. He's not rebuking the Muslim. Who's he rebuking? The professing Christian that's committing abominations. And so this is the household of faith committing abominations against the Lord. And they're revealing that the better part of them are bereft of faith. They are joined to the visible church externally by sacrament, by circumcision, by Passover, but they're not joined savingly to the Lord by spirit-wrought, gifted faith. And so we learn something when Jesus says to Ezekiel to tell them, tell them that I know that they're committing abominations, which he says what this idolatry is to him. There's a few things that we learn about Jesus, and it's kind of... Some of it will be Christianity or Bible 101. You would say, well, everybody knows this. Everybody knows that Christ is, or everyone knows Christ is omniscient, or God is omniscient. Do these professing believers, Jews, do they believe that God is omniscient? What do they say a number of times through the text? And they use the Lord in all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, does not what? He does not see. He does not see. He does not know. This is the household of faith denying the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. Again, if this was some card-carrying pagan, we would say, well, they get a pass. They don't know anything. These people are people who are using the covenantal name, Yahweh or Jehovah, saying, Jehovah doesn't know. The I am that I am, the uncreated, underived, infinitely independent God, does not see. And what do we learn? That he does. That he does. This is why I say this is kind of like a, a, a repetition of something that is fundamental. We, I'll just say we kind of generically, Christians would not sin with a free hand or so openly if we truly believed the attributes of our God, the way that we say <laughs> we believe. We say from Psalm 139, I quoted it this morning, I love that psalm. He's in the top of the mountain, he's in the bottom of the sea. If we really believed that the, the, the eyes of the Lord everywhere, he knows, he sees, we're always quorum Deo in the presence or before the face of God, it would change the way that we lived. It would change the way that we speak. It would change the way that we thought, the way, the way that we felt. And the people of God here, the professing people of God, are living as if God does not see them. And, of course, some of the reasons why they may be provoked to think that is it looks like the heathen are having some successes against them, which is the case. God calls for the Babylonians and says, essentially, my people are living like Gentiles, and I'm going to chastise them with Gentiles. And so they're looking around and say, it looks like the Gentiles are winning. Beloved, when you look around and you see all the perversity and the corruption in our country, what do you think? Sometimes 
taking from the principle of the Old Testament, I think, well, this is the church's fault. (laughs) This is not so much the heathen's fault. This is the church living like a heathen. And God gives us what what we deserve sometimes. So, the Lord God tells Ezekiel to tell the people, actually, I do see. And he wants to remind us that he is an omniscient God. And in connection with his omniscience is his omnipresence, as I've mentioned. And so God sees us, and God is, we are always with us. I, the, the phrase uh, Emmanuel, God is with us. Christ, according to his deity, is here in the church tonight. The Bible says he walks among the lampstands of his people. And so they have rejected that God is omnipresent and God is omniscient. And what they've done is then they have thus excused themselves or they've thought that his ignorance allows them to engage in their sin with safety. Matthew Henry, again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, his commentary on that, says sin in our life will be either pain and shame in this life or pain and shame in the next. And a passage like this comes along and Christ wants to remind his professing people over and over and over again, I am a holy God. I am a holy God. I know all. Everything is open and bare before me. Now, is this frightening? It is frightening. And what it's meant to frighten us to do, if the sweet words, the promises, the sweet promises of the gospel do not woo us to stay faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, then he retains the use of harsh words even the rod. And I would argue to God's elect, even that's a kindness. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, he does what to all those he loves? He scourges. And so sometimes he uses frightening means to keep us walking closely with Christ. And that is to say the believers among the people. But here, I would argue the bulk of the people in the, in the ex- visible church, they're, they're unbelievers. And we mentioned this earlier. God is so upset with his professing people because they are perverting his worship. And I've recommended so many times, and I hope someone takes me up on it. Now read question and answer of our larger catechism, question and answer 99, which is how to study the Ten Commandments. It is exceedingly good. And then question and answer 151, how we aggravate our sins before the Lord, how we make them more heinous. You, you, You can't get any worse than this. We aggravate, I'll use the four heads, we aggravate our sins by the person doing the sinning. In this case, it's a professing believer. We make it worse by the person we sin against. In this case, it's the Lord. We make it worse by the type of sin. It's the corruption of God's worship. And we make make it worse in the time of the offense, in the worship of the Lord. And Christ comes and says over and over again, this is an abomination to me. It's the height. It's the height of God's anger. Our God is loving and kind and merciful and gracious and long-suffering. If that were not true, we wouldn't be here. If that was not true, there'd be no cross. Those are all true. But this is true. We can't make an idol of the tenderness or the patience of God to the exclusion of the other attributes that God reveals in his word. We can't. We would be guilty of being like Marcion, chopping up the Old Testament. We would be guilty of being Thomas Jefferson. He was a deist. He didn't like miracles. So he went through the Bible and chopped out the parts he didn't like. Beloved, we can't do that. Jesus says we are required to live on what? how many words of the Bible? Every word. 
So even these passages here, when God says, I am especially provoked when you pervert my worship, we should say, Lord, are we perverting your worship? Or we should be like the people in verse 4. When we see professing believers committing idolatry, when we see professing believers corrupting the worship of God, we should lament. We should pray. We should pray that God would send conviction, that God would send salvation, that God would send a purifying influence, and we should lament. God has a special zeal for his own worship. And when we're looking at how Christ is presented, he's presented with these figures of fire, which depicts a number of things. And this is in language. Remember, we're in the Old Testament. The people of God were used to hearing symbolic words applied to the Lord. And you look at the the vineyard of the Lord, and God is the the vine, the vineyard keeper. And the people of God would have said, "Oh, that's the Lord. This is the Lord." We think the the Good Shepherd passage, John chapter ten. We think that that's just clearly a new. This is a New Testament concept as the Lord as the Good Shepherd. No. Every Jew that was there in John chapter 10 would have said, oh, this is just Ezekiel 34. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son and the king of David. He's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. Well, the same thing is the case that we're looking at here with these figures of, 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 of fire and light and radiance and glowing metal. The people of God regularly heard these things. How did God come to speak to Moses, when he gave that covenantal name, I am Yahweh, is it Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am. How did he present himself to Moses? In fire. How did he lead the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years? A pillar of what? Fire and cloud smoke. And the Bible says, and the Lord was in the fire. And so God comes in those kind of ways. I mentioned uh, Revelation chapter 2. Christ walks among the lampstands of his church. He is here, especially in his worship. But the, the idea of the, the presentation of Christ or God with figures of fire and so on, we're looking at that attribute that I referenced from Isaiah 6. The angels fly around the throne. With two, they cover their faces. Two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. The modern view, even in much of the professing church, is they just take John, 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 10, and they say, God is what? Love. And that's true. I love the love of God. We're, we, we have our being. We have our, we have our, our regeneration because God is love and merciful. But much of the modern church has forgotten what the book of Ezekiel is all about. God is holy. He is holy. He's so holy, it would almost make us faint. He's so holy. We, we cannot. Even the person that loves Jesus so much, you can be an older saint and walking with him and love Jesus. I would argue we're grasping a little, little, little tiny bit. If we were to see in our immediate presence the risen holy Christ here, there would not be a believer sitting in a chair. Where would we be? All in our faces all in our faces. John O. Patmos was what? Trembling like a dead man. And God is telling his church throughout the whole book, I am holy, holy, holy. 
We pray that God would renovate our country or renovate his church. I would argue if we could capture or recapture the holiness of God, oh, it would, tra- it would transform our lives. It would transform our marriages. It would transform the way that we raise our children, the way that we come to church. It would transform everything if we would just grasp that God is holy, holy, holy. Revelation 1, I turned and heard a voice that was speaking with me. I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Here's Christ, clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, girded across his chest, a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, that's the church, and out of his mouth came what? It's the holiness of Christ. I know we're looking thematically at chapter 8 and chapter 9. Jesus tells Ezekiel to tell the professing people of God, you have forgotten that I am holy. And he is greatly provoked with the perversion of his worship. And he tells He tells Ezekiel to tell the people. He tells Ezekiel, climb through the wall, dig through the wall, look at what you see. He tells the people of God, I actually do know that you're committing this abomination. And he pronounces judgment on it. Our Jesus, who is so gentle and compassionate, the attribute of Christ, when I first started reading the Bible at 26 years old, the attribute of Christ that melted me, that I love so much, was the compassion of Jesus. Jesus would say he looked at them and he felt compassion or pity like they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know why that resonated with me so much, but it was the compassion. But again here, we're looking at Jesus Christ also saying, as the same Christ, that he has an intense hatred uh, towards sin. He brings them up into his holy temple and look at what they're doing in his holy temple They are doing unholy things. And we see something. You remember, was it chapter chapter 7? Maybe chapter 6, chapter 7, I forget which. We're seeing James says to us, he speaks to the church. James says that sin is a very fruitful thing. If you don't mortify sin when it's a little baby, it's going to grow. It grows more in, uh, in quantity and it grows more or more gross in quality. Think of like sin as a baby tiger. If and I don't, if a baby tiger, a little one, we could pick up and say, "Isn't this cute?" If you let that baby tiger grow for a year, you're not going to pick it up because it's going to pick you up in its teeth and it's going to eat you. And what we see here is Jesus wants to show Ezekiel how sin grows, particularly the sin of idolatry. Back in chapter seven, I think he tells Ezekiel, "Look out at the mountains, preach to the mountains. Remember that, preach to the mountains of Israel." and preach against them. And in that chapter, he he says to the people of God, I see that you're creating all these high places up on the mountains. You think you're doing your idolatry in secret. Now look at where the idolatry is. It's not in the mountains anymore. It's in the temple. This is the growth of sin. When we... Oh, no, no, I would never bring this in the church. No, I would never bring like juke joint activities in the church. I wouldn't pretend that the church is a juke joint. I'll just do my juke joint out of the juke joint. It will never be in the church. 
one week, one year, 10 years. I would say we could go to certain churches. What passes for worship in certain churches right now, I'm 57. Even as a Roman Catholic, 50 years ago, you would say never in a million years would any professing Christian do that in a church. And it's the stuff that fills stadiums. So it starts off out yonder. It starts off in secret. And now what are the people? They're bold as brass. They're bold as brass. I don't need to go up on the mountain. I'm going to do it in the temple. And, and that's what Christ says. Christ says this thing has grown because God did not bring his immediate judgment against it. And that's one of the difficulties. People are looking around saying, so if God's so mad with it, how come we're doing great? But you're not doing great. The judgment of God is just so long-suffering, and that's part of his compassion. His delay in judgment doesn't mean he won't bring it. It means he's being merciful and kind and gracious. He's leaving a time for repentance, as Peter says. Is not God saying, well, I don't see anything, and I guess if you like it, I guess I like it. But the people have grown in their idolatry. Again, look at the practitioners of idolatry. Verse 6, the house of? Verse 6, the house of Israel. Look at verse 17, the house of Judah. Read sometime if you have a little bit of time, maybe this week, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. The better part of the visible professing church here is what God is saying. They're unbelievers. The better part of the people of God that came out of Egypt, God swore in his wrath, you're not going to enter my rest. They're unbelievers. But we're, we're, we're circumcised. We're baptized. We, we, we take the Passover. We take the Lord's Supper. You're an idolater. And God swore in his wrath that you won't enter into his rest. I love the church. I have a very high doctrine of the church. How anyone could ever say in their right mind, the church saves. I don't, I don't even know what Bible you're reading. I don't know what Bible you're reading. Christ saves. Christ saves. Does he use the church? Yes, it's the church's institution. But look from Old Testament to New Testament. Um, we need saving. The church itself does not save. It's the blood of Christ. So the house of Judah, house of Israel. Look at 11 and 12. The leaders, the 70, the Sanhedrin, the very leaders of the household of God, what are they doing? They're committing idolatry, which is what? Spiritual adultery. This is why God regularly says to his professing people, you are adulteresses. And the same is true in the book of um, James, chapter 4. He says to the New Testament people, you've made yourself friends of God, you adulteresses. You think, well, that offends me. I'm a professing Christian. It should offend us. And it should offend us to say what? Am I being adulterous? Am I committing spiritual adultery with false gods? Am I corrupting this, the, the worship of Am I? And then what's the recourse? Father, forgive me. Holy Spirit, have mercy. Change me. That's the recourse. The recourse is not to bow up and reject the word of God. Now look at some of the other practitioners of... Um, of idolatry in verse 14 and then verse 16. You have women and men. So it's not, it's not no, no one gets a pass. The women are in the outer, outside, outer courts. They're weeping for this false god to move. And then the men, and I think the men are the priests, they turn their back towards the Lord, towards the temple, and they bow down to the sun. These are the professing 
people of God. And Christ tells Ezekiel, I want you to tell the people that I see all of this. Again, being a minister, sometimes I look at God's call on Isaiah, on, on Ezekiel, on, on some of the other, Jeremiah, and I think, oh, oh, what a painful ministry. God tells Ezekiel, do you see this? Now go and tell them. I mean, I feel bad, I feel bad as a New Testament minister preaching to saved people about these heavy things. Imagine being the one called by God. Tell these people they will get judgment. What a heavy, heavy burden. But he does. And a couple of reasons why. And I'm just going to, some practical things regarding. What makes a person that once professed faith or currently professes faith in the Lord, what makes them worship a false god? What makes them do? Some potential reasons. There are two. One, they fall out of love with the true God and they forget the nature of the true God and they fall in love with their false God, which is their spiritual paramour. Falling out of love with the true, falling in love with the false. I mentioned it this morning. Um, Jesus says you can't have two first loves. And these people, like the people we saw this morning, they reveal who their first love is. And it's not the Lord. It's Tammuz. It's the sun god. It's their carvings. You think, what's the big deal? They're just carving. They're just beautifying what God are. Well, the big thing is they're corrupting. They're rejecting. God said, I want to be worshipped like this. And they say, well, you'll like what we add to your worship. And God says, I, I, I actually will One of the reasons people love idolatry so much is it allows us to keep our sin and then to pretend that we we are religious. And so God expresses what he expresses. Verse chapter 9, and I'm not going to walk through chapter 9. Chapter 9 is essentially the execution of his judgment. God tells us in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is his death. That's what we're looking at. But I, I want to end with what we see in, in verse, um, where do we see it? We see the people weeping over, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 4. This, this is what I want to end with. Chapter 9, verse 4. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in the midst. These are the believers. This is the remnant. Read Isaiah chapter 6 towards the end of the chapter. This is the believing remnant. Read the book of Malachi. These are the people that speak often of the Lord within the larger church. These are the people that truly weep for the honor of God. They weep over the sin. And God says, I want you to put a mark on them. And what is the mark for? That they won't receive justice. Of course, Christ will take justice for us. The book of Revelation says this. Revelation chapter 13. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 3. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And this is very similar to what we find here. Christ says this. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven 
even from my God and my in, and out of heaven from my God in my new name. Revelation 14 verse 1. And I looked and behold the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Beloved, this is the comfort that I take and I want to impart from a passage like this. We are looking at a passage of complete apostasy, but it's not total apostasy. God always, always, always has that remnant of people that he has given true faith to, that love him, that adhere to him, and he places a mark on us. And the mark says essentially, mine. When the children of Israel were required to put the blood over the doorposts, what did that blood testify? When I see the blood, then I will pass over. Beloved, you would, we look around and we lament at much of the state of the church. That is a testimony that you have that mark, you have that name written on you, belonging to the Lord. Even notwithstanding the mercy and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, this passage very much is what John tells to us in 1 John chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says to believers, little children, keep yourself from what? From idolatry. From idolatry. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.